Welcome to the REI Mastermind Network, where host Jack Haas gathers amazing stories from leaders in real estate investing. In each episode, our guests will tell you what they're doing that works, what they've tried that failed, and best of all, you'll learn actionable steps to take your real estate investing to the next level. Now, here's Jack with another value-packed episode. We have Jake Clopton on. Jake is with Clopton Capital. And if you want to follow along, and there's a ton of information on, on his website. Uh, so head over to CloptonCapital.com. I'll make sure to have that link in the show notes. But we're going to be talking about a, a little bit of everything here today because Jake has some multifamily experience and some commercial uh, buying experience himself, but he's also a lender and he's here to help us bridge that gap as people are starting to transition from like single family home buying to multifamily and commercial property and 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 everything in between. So I really appreciate your time here today, Jake. Likewise. Thanks so much for having me on. Appreciate it. Excited. So I'm always curious, you know, you, you, you mentioned that you uh, started, that you do have some multifamily and rental properties of your own. Uh, what started you on that journey? Um, well, I so I, I got into you know the commercial real estate finance space in like 2009, 10 era. I used to trade like interest rate futures. Um, I, I'm in Chicago, so I used to you know work at a trading firm here. And you know I like to invest in things that I understand. Like for instance, I'm a really bad stock picker, so I don't buy stocks. Uh, but I understand real estate. So the first building I bought was in 2014. Uh, it was a 20-unit property, a mix of studios, one beds and two beds in uh, Cicero, Illinois. You know, at, at the time, there wasn't a lot of people investing in Cicero, but, you know, I, I did a lot of homework. You know, it was my first property. So I, you know, went and sat outside the building you know, to watch what was happening, stuff like that. Uh, and, you know, I, I got really comfortable with the area and uh, we've been acquiring it. And, Obviously, you know, if you own property since 2014, you know, it's probably done pretty well since then. Yeah. Well, it's it's interesting that you jumped right into uh, multifamily. A lot of people, like I mentioned before, we hit record that that's kind of aspirational. They'll start with single family homes and they'll move up to multifamily, but you kind of jumped right in. Yeah. You know, I, I've, I've, I've looked at a lot of SFR stuff in the past. It's, you know, it just, again, it goes along with my theme of you know, wanting to invest in things that I was comfortable with and I really understood. Right. So, I mean, all day long, I spent looking at P&Ls for multifamily properties, and I did loans for multifamily properties, right? So, I mean, what, one of the things that helped me out was having the right connections to convince lenders to go into this area that they weren't really willing to look at before. And so, you know, I mean, that, that's what kind of pushed me in there, just the familiarity of it and the comfort level. Um, because, I, I, you know, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not an expert, or I wasn't at least in just single family home rentals and that lending side. So uh, like I said, you know, you uh, are kind of bridging that gap and filling that gap between as, as people are, are moving up to these multifamily, like what are some of those things that uh, people should expect are going to be the difference when it comes to underwriting these type of properties? Yeah. I mean, I think the biggest difference is, you know, is, you know, commercial, it really is a different industry than just residential, right? I mean, it's got a lot of different rules applied to it. It's got a whole different set of lending criteria. Um, and, and then also managing these types of properties, right? It's a lot different. I mean, just, just in general, you know, the mechanicals in a multifamily property is 20 units. It's going to be totally different from just a single family home. 
Um, and, and I think, you know, a lot of people that are looking to make that jump, you need, really need to understand and prepare themselves for, you know, for what those differences are. Like on the operational side, you know, just managing a, like that many units alone in one property, you know, that can be, you know, pretty cumbersome for a lot of people. And, you know, for, for at least, you know, the first deal or so, I, I like to, you know, tell people to at least kind of line themselves with a property management company so that they can actually at least see the way that it's operated and, you know, and stuff like that. Um, you know, the, the mechanicals and some of the repair costs, you know, when it comes to a much larger building, uh, I, I think can, can kind of be surprising sometimes. Um, so, you know, just really getting a good handle on, you know, the various upkeep and operational side, I, I, I think is, you know, first and foremost, what you should really familiar, familiarize yourself with. Um, the, the, the lending side is, you know, it is much different as well. Uh, a lot of the people that I see that, I, that I'm kind of helping bridge the gap from just residential to commercial, right, is, you know, I, I think the biggest, you know, thing that sticks out right away is that commercial loans balloon. And most residential ones don't, right? I mean, if you're looking at a residential mortgage, you know, a lot of times you'll get like a 30-year fixed, uh, right? And it just doesn't balloon. The vast majority of commercial loans are going to be five, seven, or 10-year fixed and balloon within those, you know, sometime in that period. Um, so, you know, like understanding that and, you know, the different costs involved, I think, are, you know, first and foremost, the biggest issues. Well, since you brought up the balloon, and I suppose that's probably going to be what a lot of our listeners are like, okay, now the, the balloon aspect, how is that managed at, at that time when now this big, large sum of money is, is coming due? Does it typically roll over into a new loan? How does, how does, that, all, how does that all look? Yeah, I mean, the, the life cycle of most commercial property ownership is actually sometime within those balloon periods. So a lot of people trade in and out of property, stuff like that. So a lot of times, you know, we'll get borrowers that will, you know, do one of three things, right, at Blender. You know, they'll target, you know, a property exit, you know, and to roll into another property. So let's say in a 10-year timeline, they've, you know, obviously increased in value, they've got more equity in the deal, and then they sell. And then the typical game time or game plan then is to 1031 exchange into, you know, a, bar, a larger property. Right. And if you don't know what 1031 exchanges are, they're tax deferred, you know, exchange vehicles. So you don't pay, you know, capital gains on, you know, the increase in value. Two, you know, of most, uh, what most people do is, you know, a recap, you know, if they're going to continue ownership. So, and that's, you know, take cash out, um, cash out. So, so let's say you bought a $2 million property five, seven, 10 years ago, and now it's going to balloon, right? And we're going, and that value has increased to 4 million bucks. <clears throat> right. So technically today you can cash out up to 75% of that 4 million. So everything over your previous loan amount can go back to you as cash out proceeds. Those proceeds are actually not taxed either. Right. So all that, you know, increase in value and all those, the, the tax liability stays within the property until you exit it. So then you can, again, take those cash out proceeds and roll that into a new property, other investments, stuff like that. Um, there's a good arbitrage, you know, you can make between what you're going to pay on your new loan and then what you can make as a return on what, whatever you can do with that money, right? I mean, I don't say take it to Vegas, right? But normally it's putting it into another property. Or, you know, some people are just more conservative and they, they go and, uh, you know, maybe approach the same lender to try to just redo the loan or, you know, go to another source to try to stretch out the amortization and not really take cash out and just roll the loan over to a new facility. 
Um, so there's a couple of different ways you can go. I mean, at the end of the day, these are investments, right? And everybody's investment profile is different. So what's right for one person is not right for the next. So really just going to come down to a personal investment profile, what they're going to end up doing. Sure. So just a reminder, everybody head over to cloptoncapital.com for a lot more information and and especially regarding some of the details, because it's we're kind of going into the weeds on a few things here and it can get a little, it's easy to get lost. So it, his website is a great resource in which to kind of sort some of this out. Uh, Jake, this kind of leads me to my next question around what does a person do then in order to get ready to this graduation as they're going into multifamily? How do they get ready to make sure that they qualify for these larger loans? I know you're talking about loans starting essentially at a million dollars or more for right. some of these multifamily properties or commercial properties. Right, right. So, you know, as far as getting ready, I, I think just getting your docs in a row on the operational side and, you know, really understanding how this property is going to be operated, you know, what you're realistically going to make on this property, because I mean, I guarantee you whatever the sales broker has written down is not how it's going to work out in reality, you know, and, and then it just understanding like, you know, the, the risk, right, involved in this property, you know, and, and how you're going to potentially pay for things that come up. I mean, you know, I, I know a lot of people get in a deal and say, oh, well, the roof is 30 years old and, you know, we'll just handle things that come up, but that can be a pretty big cost. So, you know, kind of ensuring that, you know, you're not overreaching and that you do have good reserves to handle unforeseen costs. You know, I, I think that that's one of the most important things is just, you know, Make sure you're, you're not overstretching yourself. That, that's where I see the vast majority of people get into trouble, right? Unforeseen costs, they overstress themselves to get into it. And then all of a sudden, things just kind of cascade and spiral out of control from there. Another one of the big differences in commercial versus residential lending is, you know, a, a lot of times in residential, you kind of go get pre-approved for a loan. You know, a lot of people try to and then go, you know, find an investment property and they, hey, this is how much I can afford, right? There's no pre-approval in commercial. So it's, it's a little bit backwards. So, you know, when, you, when you're going into the scenario, you really need, need to, I, you know, in my timeline personally is find, get your equity together, find the property, you know, put together the team, the, the property manager, and then like the different aspects of your operational side, and then go find the financing, right? It's, it's, it's going to be almost impossible to, for me to size, you know, a loan without a property, right? Because commercial, the economics of the commercial loan are all dependent on the economics of the property itself, not not really the person behind it, right? So, I mean, the, you know, the, those are some things that I think people can, can kind of understand and use to prepare themselves for the commercial space. Um, biggest difference is that, you know, in residential, I, I think most of the credit decision comes from the person down, whereas commercial, it comes from the property up. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you, earlier you mentioned, uh, don't trust basically what the, what the salesperson might've put on the property. You know, it, it kind of reminds me, I've, I've said for uh, quite a while, or this might be just my own personal belief that the pro forma that's typically uh, published is, is pretty much fiction. You kind of got to dive yeah. into those numbers. So when you're, when you're reviewing this property, you're not taking that pro forma. You're, you're more curious as to how the the buyer, the, the potential buyer is going to, how they're going to run the numbers, how they value it and how, how it's almost like a business plan. 
Would that be a fair statement? That's it's a great way to put it. And I say this all the time. Real estate's a business, right? It, it you know, I mean, buying a stock with a dividend, that's just an investment. That's not, you know, but like, I mean, real estate is a real operating business, e- even in simple, pro- simpler properties, like, like multifamily, stuff like that, right? I mean, there, there's a, a real, you know, expense and revenue management side that needs to come along with these types of investments. And you're absolutely right. Like, like when, when I look at a, a broker pro forma, you, you gotta, you gotta really realize that, I mean, these bro the real estate brokers, and I mean, it's their job, right? They're here to sell properties and they need to make it look as attractive as possible. Right. And, you know, and to do that, like, if you go on LoopNet, right. I mean, a lot of people are going to search by cap rate and they're going to have a max. So, I mean, realistically, they want that cap rate to look as attractive as possible to attract the most people. When we're, when you're underwriting a property from the credit side, yeah, I mean, you certainly look at the pro forma in the, in the sales package, but realistically, I kind of just set that aside. Um, and we really need the seller's P&Ls, right? But even more so, what is something that's becoming even more common now is lenders requesting the seller's tax returns, right? Because very often, what's in the P&L versus the tax return can maybe be two different things. And, you know, that that might be something that would be a good tip for a lot of buyers, you know, because, you know, what's in the tax returns tends to be, you know, a little bit more accurate than maybe just what's on a P&L. Because at the end of the day, a P&L is just something that they created, right? And, you know, additionally, there are certain like standard input, you know, costs that you put into expenses, right? So, you know, market management, market vacancy, you know, certain expense levels, you know, and you can kind of back into those, you know, and do. And what I, what I really suggest is that anybody looking to, you know, buy commercial property really does their own pro forma, right? And understand, like, pull the property taxes, right? I guarantee you, and this is just how it is in Chicago. Every single broker, you know, sales performer I see has last year's property taxes on it. You know what I mean? And it, I, I was, uh, I was evaluating a property, I think last year, and the property taxes on it, it was a, just an apartment building. Property tax on it, like twenty five thousand bucks. And you know, the buyer was making the decision to buy it based on, you know, property tax twenty five thousand bucks, and it turned out that it was actually jumping up to sixty. The year after he was going to buy it, and that was already locked into the assessor's office. So surprises like that can come out, um, and that's definitely going to affect your cap rate, right? So you know, ch- definitely checking into what all of those things are, and a lot of most of them are, are in public records, right? Like, and you know, sometimes you can find out what the actual water bills were. As for as for the actual utility bills, know what the property taxes are you're going to be the year after you buy them. You know, and then input those market vacancy and, and management. Um, you know, that's another underwriting thing that a lot of brokers leave out, you know, when their cap rate calculation. Um, then I think you'll get a lot closer to what the real return on this building is going to be. Yeah. No, you know, one of the things, the lesson that I learned actually, and it seems like it goes by state because I, I'm actually on a border between Minnesota and North Dakota. And oh, uh, yeah, depending yeah. on the state, taxes are calculated different. And in North Dakota, for example, just the act of the property changing hands and you buying at it at an increased value than what that person had bought. That's what drives the value of some of those commercial properties. So just the sale could bite you in the butt down the road. Sure. Absolutely. I mean, yeah, every assessor is a little different. Um, I mean, the one here in Cook County is, you know, we're not going to go there, but you're here right a lot of times, you know, it, it really is like just the sale alone. And they're just say, okay, well, it's just sold for 400, 
grand versus 200, which we had a value before. So that's the new value. Mm -hmm. And now your property taxes are double. So right. I mean, th th those are those are real numbers, right? I mean, that, that's real money that's going to go out the door in your investment. So you definitely have to pay attention to that type of stuff. So talk to you about the like the the personal, like any kind of what what a person would need, whether it's credit history, what money they should have as a down payment, anything that that they might need to bring to the table. Right. So I'm going to talk specifically about habitational properties, like so, like multifamily stuff like that. If you if if you're somewhere around anywhere from let let's say six hundred thousand dollars as an acquisition price up to two hundred, right? That 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 range, or excuse me, up to two million. That that range is gonna like when you get over a million dollars in loan amount, you're gonna have access to different types of loan facilities than you would in a sub million dollar space. When you're when you're in this like when you're in the loan amount space that's below a million bucks, the vast majority of the financing in that space is gonna be from local banks and credit unions, right? And and I always tell people this: don't go to Bank of America for small loans. Don't get a large guy. Go literally go to like whatever bank you can find that's closest to the property, like a one, two branch bank. That's going to be your best lender for small, you know, commercial properties like that. And the 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 down the middle down or down payment answer is going to be you know twenty five, maybe twenty percent. Depends on who it is. I, I think you know probably maybe some credit unions will give you like high like up to eighty percent LTV. And stuff like that, but yeah, I think eighty percent of the answers are going to be twenty-five percent down payment, so seventy-five percent LTV max. And probably, you know, when you're in this sub-million-dollar loan space, you know, the vast majority of terms are going to be a five-year fix and a twenty-five-year end. Right? That, that's not a bad deal if you're talking about you know six hundred thousand bucks. Um, I've got two buildings that have loans just like that on them. I've been doing nothing but arranging loans for fourteen years, and that's what I ended up with. So I think that's most people are going to end up with. You know, as as far as like personal credit for a commercial loan, you, you really, I mean, the, the things that you really need to, you know, avoid are any like blemishes, right? I mean, they're not looking for you to completely, you know, carry the property on your own. It's got its own income, right? But what they want to, you know, what they're really going to search into is, is two things. Are there any bad credit history? Do you have bankruptcies, judgments, stuff like that? I mean, the, the bare minimum credit score that most lenders are going to deal with is like a 650, you know, so, you know, make sure obviously it's a, it's a loan, it's a credit decision. So, you know, make sure when you're going into this stuff that, you know, you, you kind of clean up the credit profile. If you've got, I, I don't know, collections or stuff like that, they can pull it down. You know, additionally, you know, they're going to want to look and again, going back to this concept before of not stretching yourself, right? They're going to want to make sure that you still got, you know, some liquidity, some cash in the bank after you buy this property. And the the down the middle answer that I usually tell people is if you have 10% of the loan amount in outside liquidity after you buy the property, that's a great place, right? So, you know, you've got a, a $600,000 loan you're asking the bank for. If you've got 60 grand outside of the down payment, that's a great place to be. And I, I think, you know, the vast majority of lenders are going to agree. So, you know, uh, you, you mentioned then it, we talked about it being treated as a business and, and essentially having a running your own pro forma. Do you take into account a track record? Like if somebody has other multifamily properties, they've shown historically that th this is their kind of wheelhouse, that they know what they're doing. So the, the, the track record, you know, isn't necessarily going to affect the underwriting, right, um, of the property itself. 
you know, we're, we're going to underwrite the property to like whatever the real expenses are. The track record comes more into the decision of whether or not this person is going to operate this property themselves. Do you know what I mean? Like sure. for there's a big difference between, hey, this guy's buying a 20 department building. He owns 10 others and he manages all of them himself. Great. He can manage his property there. And there's a big difference between that and, hey, this guy owns two single family homes. He's now buying a 20 apartment building. He's also going to operate it himself. And that that might be a big ask, right? I mean, it's 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 not only a, a much bigger asset, there's also it's also a, a different type of asset. And it's really going to come down to the fact of whether or not you know somebody's going to lend against this property with you as the manager. Um, that's why, you know, and I really, really would advise people that are getting into that stuff, it, you know, to at least for the first year, two years, have a real professional property manager in there, pay them the fee, whatever it is, you know, you can learn, you know, everything that they're going to do and, and really understand the process. If your end goal is to manage it yourself, uh, I would go that direction, right? At least for the first deal minimum. Um, I think it's be tougher to get to prove alone anyways if you're the manager, but, you know, just risk wise, that, that would be the smarter way to go. Sure. No, that, that makes a lot of sense. So with, with all that being said, it, it sounds like, would it, would it be fair outside of the, of the down payment? I mean, if you're trying to come up with 20%, 25% down payment, that's probably going to be the biggest hurdle for people is to get that piece together. Or is there anything else they should be aware of? You know, outside of really keeping their credit clean and having this good business plan of like the, on the operational side, you know, there, there's there's not really ultimately that much that a person themselves r- really needs. I mean, you know, the property is going to be the vast majority of the underwriting. So I think as long as they, you know, they manage their credit well and they've got, you know, a, a good amount of outside liquidity and a good business plan in place, I think the deal gets done. Um, I mean, it's it's real estate at the end of the day. Like, I mean, it's not it's not rocket science, right? There's but there's more than enough ways to trip yourself up. Um, but it, it's just about having those, you know, the, the the right things in place, which is the credit, liquidity, and the operational side. So is is there like let's say a, a person comes with a property at, at a at a great price? I mean, that's one of the specializations that uh, we do is finding properties at deep discounts. Is is the equity there that can be achieved through those type of negotiations? Can, can it be considered part of that down payment? So that's a good question. And, and I do see that pretty often in, you know, residential world, right? Ultimately, the answer is really no. The, the, the lenders in the commercial space, there's, there's a term called cost basis consideration, right? That, that's going to go into these deals. And, you know, there's, there's also kind of like a, a valuation consideration of it's worth what somebody will pay for it, right? Let's, let's say, you know, I, and, and I, I get this, I get this request all the time, right? Hey, I'm buying this property. I've negotiated the uh, purchase price of a million and a half bucks. I have an appraisal that says it's worth two and a half, right? Uh, I want 75% of the two and a half. And unfortunately, it's not going to work the way. The way it's going to go is they're going to go off of, you know, and you'll, you'll see this in term sheets also. The max valuation is going to be appraised value or purchase price, the lower of the two. Right, so we're always going to go off of purchase price for acquisitions. The 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 typical window when cost basis consideration can burn off, and you can you know let's say recap you know to you know to refinance all that stuff out to the the, the 
uh, praise value. It's going to be somewhere around the two-year mark. Um, that's where the vast majority of commercial lenders are going to completely burn off the cost basis. Now, I, I quite often recap stuff at about 12 months of ownership. And, you know, we'll get up to like 85, 90% of the person's total cost basis in there. But, but that's, that's going to be the way that the vast majority of deals are going to go. There, there is a different consideration for people that are buying and doing value add, meaning like rehabbing it, they're creating value. But if you're just buying a property that's fully stabilized and you're getting a great deal, you, you got a great deal, right? But, but for, it, it's not going to ultimately affect how much loan dollars they're willing to lend. Mm-hmm. So so it is it is different if there's a way that uh, the, the buyer is adding value. Yes. There, there that's are, probably a whole nother episode. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, look, there's a whole bunch of value engineering ways to do things, right? I mean, especially on the construction side, there's a lot of, you know, like when people are doing construction, there's a lot of step up land basis plays you can do and all this stuff. But but when you're when you're buying something that's a fully baked asset as it is, and you know, you're just getting a good price on it, they're they're gonna use that price that you're paying for it, right? Um, you might have to wait a little while to really realize, you know, all of that, you know, extra value you're creating at closing. But, you know, I, I think what that really does for a lot of people is, you know, if they are going to bring in investors, it, it lets them capitalize the, the equity side, you know, much, much easier. Sure. So you also mentioned before we hit record something about joint ventures. How does that work for you? Right. So I, I do have a lot of experience in the equity side as well. And we do we do joint venture at like limited partner equity um, for like really big developments, right? Like minimum check size of three million bucks. But I can also kind of speak to like you know some of the guys that we kind of shepherd through the process of moving from friends and family equity um, up to joint venture equity. And we we talk a bit more about like how they use friends and family equity to capitalize you know their initial deals, you know. Most of the, and these are called syndicators, right? Most of the syndicators we deal with kind of just got their start. Like, I mean, everybody starts at the bottom for the most part, right? And, mm-hmm. you know, if, unless they're working for some real estate company. One, two houses, they go up a little bit more, three flats, four flats, into multifamily. Then they, you know, then people start seeing what they're doing, right? And they start pulling in investors. You know, when when you start pulling in more and more investors, you know, which is what I think most people want to do. You you have to you know you, you have to start moving up in asset size pretty quickly. I'll kind of explain why. Most investors you're going to to, to bring in are not going to want to sign recourse on the loans, right? So let's say you know you want to buy a, a 20 unit property and it costs a million bucks, right? And you're going to leverage that up to 75%. So you need 250 grand. You put in 50, and then you've got four other investors that put in 50, but none of those guys want to sign on recourse. Well, now you only own 50 grand of equity, but you, you're, you're recourse on the whole thing, right? So maybe that's okay for the first one, but after the second one, you see what I mean? Your, your liabilities start to quickly outweigh your assets because now you've signed on you know, as recourse for everybody. So once you start doing the investor route, what you have to do is move into larger properties where you can get more sophisticated types of finance, where you can get non-recourse financing. And non-recourse is really just, you know, 
is it's the entire recourse of the loan is based on the property. So there's no personal guarantee attached to it. So what that does is that allows, you know, syndicators who are pulling in investor capital to be able to be the general partner on basically as many properties as they want. And the, their liabilities won't outweigh their assets, right? Because they're not signing on a loan. They're just getting equity every time. And, and, and that's that's the way, you know, most, the vast majority of syndicators, they, they run into that, you know, contingent liability, you know, dilemma very, very quickly. And it's just as soon as you start going that way and pulling an investor equity, you, you've got to start moving up the chain to get non-recourse financing. So that, that's, sure. that was going to say it's the biggest thing to keep in mind once you start getting investors. So. Sure. So, you know, there's obviously a lot to cover here and, and uh, you should really rely on uh, Jake's website for some additional information and insight to, to, to try to clarify some things. So head over to cloptoncapital.com. Like I said, I'm going to make sure I have those links in the show notes. And uh, I've already went over the time that I uh, promised I was going to try to keep this to Jake. So with that okay. being said, is, is, uh, is there a question you wished I would have asked you here today? I mean, w- one of the things that I think is, is really important for, you know, investors to, <clears throat> to, to try to look into. And one thing that really helped me out a lot is that there are a lot of maybe local governmental or local utility programs that, you know, will, will give people discounts and or pay for energy efficiency uh, projects in their own buildings. Uh, for instance, we were able to get almost free boilers. We got free insulation and, and a lot of stuff like that, which saved us an enormous amount of money in a couple buildings because I looked into these types of programs and the vast majority of people don't know they exist. And I, I definitely think it's, I don't know if they're in every market, but here in Cook County, Chicago, they do. And I think it's worth everybody looking into is those types of programs for energy efficiency because um, you can save an enormous amount of money. So, no, that's a great tip. Um, and, and I'm guilty of that. I'm sure I could take advantage of some things that I, I'm not. I, I could tell you from personal experience, we saved well over a hundred thousand bucks by looking into it. Yeah. Wow. That's some big savings. Well, uh, I really appreciate you providing that last bit of, I mean, if everybody waited to the end there, they probably definitely made this was definitely worth the time investment just to listen to this episode. So I, I really appreciate your time, Jake. I hope you'll consider coming back again sometime. I, like I said, I have a feeling we could spend a whole half hour just on one of the many categories that we talked about here today. Yeah, let's do it anytime. I appreciate it. Have you learned at least one actionable step to incorporate into your real estate investing? If so, please consider returning some of that value by leaving a positive review, subscribing to our YouTube channel, or joining our growing network on Facebook and Twitter. You can find links to all of our social media accounts in the show notes. See you next time.